And it's coming out to four o'clock, and by the sounds of my voice, I won't be speaking much today. But I'll get it out right now. We'll be having history with Brian McKinlay, why the BDS is working with Paul Duffield, anger at the proposed site for the nuclear waste dump in South Australia with Regina McKenzie, the years of Ferdinand Marcos with Sonny Malinkio, the real situations in Brazil and Venezuela. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when coincidence has been piled on coincidence, followed by, you guessed it, more coincidence. And what a coincidence that from the very day big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull announced election, our neutral federal... Sorry, protectors of law and order have, by the day, discovered terrorists just everywhere. How did we survive before he called election? No proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people we discovered are illiterate, innumerate, job-stealing doll bludgers. Sponges on our goodness. Okay, okay, there may be a technical oxymoron in job-stealing doll bludgers, but the Minister of Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, said so. So obviously there's nothing oxymoronic about Peter. Socialist Party ex-ministers and officers and employees are raided by the same neutral, caring business class protectors. The Socialist Party that clearly has no respect for the law must never be trusted to make the law. Coincidence piled upon coincidence leading Lord Rupert of Wapping to tell us day after day it's the Socialist Party's campaign is unravelling in tatters and Malcolm and Peter and Lord Rupert all know to vote for anyone but the business class party would be untrue blue Aussie, perfidious, kowtowing to terror, terror represented by the socialists, the Greens, anyone else we can think of. Senate inquiries would lead to more and more raids on those who indicate they might know where the bodies are buried. And with the terrorism and no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people, almost all of whom are also terrorists, flooding this great country, there'd be bodies to bury just everywhere and Malcolm and the team assure us all this is just pure coincidence upon coincidence upon coincidence because the government has nothing to do with any of this and for goodness sake who but the most conspiracy theory paranoids would think it did and with almost six weeks of this election fever that has us so intrigued to go 40 days or so that's 40 times for slip-ups as the media particularly the Lord Rupert Media tells us 40 days for being dragged off target of policies unravelling, socialist party slip-ups, unravelling while the caring business class party maintains sensible, responsible, good-for-all-of-us policies. But back to Peter Duffer. I just want to, like, say I have been, you know, like, misinterpreted. Pete clarified what had been misinterpreted. When I said these ignorant, good-for-nothing, you know, lazy terrorist illegals coming here are illiterate, innumerate terrorist dole bludgers stealing our jobs, I was, like, defending these lawbreakers. I was saying I am, you know, like, the perfect example of how an illiterate, innumerate, like, you know, person can get a job. And we must stop these, you know, like socialists, stealing my job. 
Well, thanks, Pete, for clarifying that. Being positive, showing that people can get jobs in this society despite a severe mental handicap. We haven't heard yet how cruel these people are to their own children, drowning them and all that, but there's weeks to go. It'll come. Why, Lord Rupert's usual suspect columnist, columnist Hack, told us the Socialist Party asylum seeker policy has been a disaster since Tampa. And for once, we'd have to agree with him. Just on that seeming oxymoron, Pete, how can they be stealing jobs in which they obviously don't have to read or add up and be dull budgers at the same time? Uh? Well, thanks to Pete for also clarifying that one. And Malcolm said it was unfair to criticise Pete for just telling the truth, which says something about Malcolm. And the timing, Malcolm? Pure coincidence! Pure coincidence! We reported last week how those who know what's good for us, like the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review and Lord Rupert, attacked the evil unions for throwing the Socialist Party campaign off course by asking it to oppose slashing penalty rates which so crucify, so penalise poor, beleaguered, caring employers. Thankfully, there is some common sense, some light at the end of, some community responsibility left in the trade union movement. And congratulations to the Shopping the Workers Union for realising penalty rates hurt the caring big retail employers, the behemoths it represents, while giving the kids down at McDonald's a lesson in exploitation, good for their character. The Shopping the Workers Union feels it important that young people starting out on their work lives comprehend just how exploitation in the workplace can hurt caring employers. How award rates, for instance, cripple great caring employers like McDonald's, increasing the cost of the rubbish they serve to the fat slobs or potential fat slobs who eat it. And that is why we have, in the interest of that comprehension by those young people, slash the award rate on their behalf. Or more correctly, agreed our members should accept sub-award rate rates and crippling conditions. Spokesperson Jack Ratt explained. The Shopping the Workers Union believes in educating workers. We also mentioned last week that appealing policy by the Shooters and Fishers Party that we all walk round with cans of capsicum spray to ward off dangerous Shooters and Fishers and to give the, sorry again, constabularies a taste of their own non-medicine. And on that, the constabulary could have been forced, reluctantly, because they hate using it, to use capsicum spray on these riffraff occupying the city square. And as the solution to homelessness is obviously move them on so the decent people in this society don't have to see them, and then move them on from wherever, and then they don't tell us where they should end up. Well, out of sight. Congratulations to Socialist Party MP David Phoney for making a huge contribution to eradicating homelessness altogether. No, seriously, let's be fair. When you've got as many investment properties as David, anyone could forget you own a two million plus home, particularly given it's in his electorate, something he surely doesn't want to be reminded of, other than when he wants them to vote for him, but not make demands which would distract him from his important real work as a right-wing numbers party hack. And... Who'd believe David Phoney's support for abolishing negative gearing is phony?
After all, our policy allows those of us currently ripping off to keep ripping off. And the government supports mums and dads investors just like David. Win-win. Of course, phony succeeded that other uncontrollable socialist Martin Cliche in that seat in Batman, so haven't those voters had all the luck? Marty turned up with a so-called think piece in Friday's Capitalist Review in his capacity as spokesperson for fossil pollution, attacking the Socialist Party's policy on gas exploration and the evil unions ripping off of responsible fossil-caring employers. How it must hurt poor Marty to have to criticise the party that put his bum on the plush seats for so many years, providing his little parliamentary pension and the trade union movement of which he was big supremo before swapping fighting for workers there to fighting for workers on the plush seat. Calling for open slather, which is good for all of us, he wrote, or whoever wrote, wrote it for him, and naturally, open slather with the evil unions not crucifying the good, benefiting the economy, international resource giants. At the end of a day, when the sun sets, looking through the window of opportunity at the bottom line, the evil unions whom I support are killing this great fossil-endowed country. As the fossils continue to save the earth, drag the poor out of poverty, the worldwide fund for nature has revealed parts of the Antarctic have already suffered a three-degree, real figure, three-degree increase in temperature. Well, that will open it up for the fossils that caused it, like the Arctic is opening up for the fossils who caused it, who can get more fossils to cause, well, not cause, because they know there is no such thing as climate change, except when they want to sell those products they, they tell us will counter climate change. Win-win. The Minister for Financing the Financiers, Matthias Rotten Tuva, must be challenged on his albeit new brilliant election sloganeering over Socialist Party promises increasing the socialist spendometer. Oh, Matthias, OK, English mightn't be your first language. People comment how your Belgian sounds so like Afrikaan. Not your first language, but surely someone in the caring business class party could tell Matthias it's spendometer. Spendometer, Matthias, come on. See Mikey, that oh-so-popular brainwave of former Socialist Party giant mind Nunawadding Pete, is introducing tap-and-go credit card technology. Surely it could, should be called tap-and-go eventually, perhaps, uh, possibly. And finally, brickbats to Médecins Sans Frontières for indirectly criticising the aforementioned giant mind Peter Duffer. Yesterday and today there's a World Humanitarian Summit and MSF has boycotted it, claiming many of the participant countries are themselves abusers of human rights and lists... How's this for long-haired, commie, greedy, wooden work in an iron nonsense? Lists True Blue Aussie, accusing True Blue Aussie of practising cruelty while hiding behind a fig leaf of good intentions. What's your response to that, Pete? Huh? <laughs> That's put them in their place. Good afternoon. And that was Mr Kevin Healy. Next up, author and historian Brian McKinlay. In recent weeks, I've been looking at the crisis of the First World War. One tends to forget that this was perhaps 
the greatest crisis in human history. In 1914, Europe had achieved a degree of prosperity and successful social organisation unequalled in human history. Now, that's not to say there weren't in Europe in 1914 great problems of poverty under development, and this varied from country to country, of course. The richest and most developed countries like Germany, France and the United Kingdom had reached, however, great stages of development which had begun a century ago with the Industrial Revolution in most cases. In 1914, it's true to say that few people anywhere could have believed the disaster that was to engulf Europe in terms, firstly, of the terrible death rate, the collapse of industry, the collapse of social order. And it's true that by 1918, the world had been changed fundamentally. I've just been reading a wonderful biography by Professor David Day, an award-winning book, on the life of John Curtin. Curtin, of course, later became wartime prime minister in the Second World War and probably one of the most uh, successful politicians in Australian history. But Curtin was a, a very fraught character. He was a man that suffered from problems of depression and his addiction to alcohol. But Curtin also, like all of his generation of people on the left, believed in 1913 and 14 that it was possible to attain socialism by peaceful means. Now, the absolute catastrophe of the war uh, shook Curtin, who, by the way, went to jail briefly for his opposition and his outspoken criticism of the war. It left Curtin, by the end of the war, very uncertain whether or not some sort of peaceful road to socialism and social change was possible. The effect of this was to make him and other people in the Labour movement wonder whether the Russian experience from 1917 onwards was the way to go. Curtin never supported the communist revolution in Russia, but like everyone, uh, he was fascinated by the events that occurred. To recap what I've said in recent weeks about the Russian revolution, in March of 1917, the Tsarist regime was overthrown by a public uprising really created by the shortage of food and basic supplies and materials and it was swept aside in a matter of a few weeks in a way that nobody had believed possible. The Tsarist regime was the most iron-clad reactionary regime on the planet and suddenly it was gone and that instituted through 1917 in Russia a year of great social upheaval and change and in October Lenin and the Bolsheviks, uh, we'd call them communists in the modern term, seized power and attempted to set up a socialist state. In the famous words of Lenin, we shall now construct the socialist order, the phrase he used on the night in October of the revolution in St. Petersburg. Around the world, everyone, conservatives and, and socialists, people alike were stunned by these events in Russia 
and it opened up a whole new uh, field of argument as to whether the Russian model was one that people could follow. Many radical socialists did think that was the case, even here in Australia, remote from Russian events, although, of course, Australia was deeply involved in the war, people thought that this might be the way to move forward. It led, in 1920 in Australia, to the formation of the Australian Communist Party. This was a dramatic event in its own way, because for the first time in 30 years, and the Labour Party in Australia had been formed quite early in Australian history in the, in the 1890s. The Labour Party has a challenge on the left. Oddly enough, today, we see the ALP challenged on the left by the Greens, who are a very different group to the people of the 1920s. But it's an interesting development because... For much of Australian history, the left progressive side of Australian politics has been in the possession of the ALP, uh, even though we've had minor parties like the Democrats and the Greens. It's unusual in this country to have a party appear on the left of the Labour Party. That happened in 1920 with the formation of the Communist Party, and that issued in actually more than half a century of conflict between the far left and the ALP with dramatic events within the side of the ALP like the split of the 50s when a, a right-wing group inside the ALP believed that sections of the ALP were sympathetic to the Communist Party and that created, among other things, the DLP. The events of the Russian Revolution of 1917 were far-reaching even in Australia. Across Europe, where the war, of course, was still raging, it led to the creation of groups who said, well, the only way to end this war, the politicians can't end it, and they couldn't, is revolution. Nobody in 1914 had believed this would be an outcome of the war but an outcome it would be. And in countries like France and Italy, to a lesser degree in Britain, and in Germany, parties of the left now had to decide whether they believed that the war could only be ended by revolution. Now, the crucial country in early 1918, as these events unfolded in Russia, and you will remember, of course, that in 1916, at Easter 1916, these revolutionary events, in a funny way, in a curious way, really, had been foretold by the Easter rising in Ireland. We should remember that the first country in Europe to take a revolutionary road uh, against the war were the Irish, and the Irish, the people of Southern Ireland, where a long, complex history had brought them into conflict with the British government, despite the war. The British soon conquered the Irish uprising with much bloodshed, but Ireland was plunged into revolution and civil war, and so the Irish events were a, almost a prediction of what was to come the following year in Russia and eventually throughout Europe. 
1918 marks the last year of the war, and it's the year when everybody and every society was war-weary and suffering terrible personal consequences. The death roll across Europe has been estimated at anywhere, and, and this is a pretty rough estimate, around 20 million dead. And that not only included casualties on the battlefields, but it included those who died of hunger and disease. And by 1918, all of these factors were playing into the European psyche. Germany was crucial as the greatest military power and the greatest industrial power of Europe. The terrible thing is that in 1914, Germany, least of all, needed to go to war. Germany had a booming industry, and in the few decades before the war, Germany, and, and especially German science, had pushed Germany to the head of European development. Even the names tell us something. A scientist called Diesel had invented the diesel engine. Uh, on seven occasions, German scientists in the decade before the war had won the Nobel Prize for involvement and for development in science. For instance, one group of German scientists moved towards the invention, although they didn't really invent antibiotics. They paved the way for that remarkable medical history and development. So in 1914, Germany was dragged into the war by Austria-Hungary. And as you remember, I'm sure, the key event there was, in a sense, a minor event, but that was the assassination at Sarajevo. Now, that became a major cause of the war. There'd been plenty of assassinations in Europe before that, but the clash between Austria-Hungary on one hand and Serbia on the other brought the Russians into the war as it was to be and out of this conflict Germany as an ally of the Austro-Hungarian Empire was involved in the war as well. Oddly enough the Kaiser didn't like the Habsburgs much even in the very last days of peace he misunderstood how desperate the crisis was going to be. And once World War I began, the Kaiser was pretty much pushed aside by the German military leaders who took over the conduct of the war, though he remained a figurehead. One shouldn't think, by the way, of the Kaiser as a sort of manic figure like Adolf Hitler, who dominated every aspect of German life in World War II. The Kaiser for all his sins, and they were many, was less fanatical. And as the war dragged on, and we know from his own personal writings and diaries, he began to have great premonitions about the disaster that lay ahead. In Germany, the Socialist Party had split bitterly over the war. The majority of the German socialists, they were the largest socialist party in Europe, and very well organised in a typically German fashion. Wonderful uh, social organisations, 
cooperatives, trade unions, but the socialists had made the fatal error of supporting the war because at the beginning of the war they feared Russia. And, and disliked the Russian aristocracy and social system. And in the end, the socialists went along with the war, as did socialist parties everywhere. But not everyone in the socialist party did so. A group calling themselves the Spartacists from an ancient Roman hero rebelled against the war and many of its leaders, including a very famous lady called Rosa Luxemburg, went to jail and spent much of the war in prison. Another man called Kurt Liebknecht, one of her allies, also went to jail. So uh, during the war, there was an opposition group in Germany. And by 1918, this opposition had grown enormously until it constituted a major force. And in the middle of 1918, uh, as the war approached its fourth anniversary, the anti-war groups in Germany began to take to the streets. There were strikes and uh, all sorts of demonstrations. To this, the Kaiser government, by the way, replied by immediately arresting men in industry who had not been called up for the military because you can't... Industries require skilled workers like the coal industry and the steel industry. These men were conscripted on the spot uh, if they struck against the war and were dispatched to the battlefield. Many of them were killed, of course. But this meant that sections of mutinous leftists rebelling against the war now found their way into the German army on the Western Front. And the effect of this was to spread disaffection everywhere among the German military. The same was happening in, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, where exactly the same war weariness had affected the population of cities like Budapest and Vienna. By October, exactly a year after the Russian Revolution, uh, Germany and Austria-Hungary were ripe for revolution. So, by the way, was France and Britain. Uh, in both countries, there were now massive public opponents in opposition to the war. But the events suddenly were triggered in Germany by the decision of the Kaiser to use the German fleet, which had spent much of the war in port, because the British fleet dominated the Atlantic Ocean and had imposed a blockade on Germany, the Kaiser had decided that his fleet would make one last desperate, heroic effort at sea, certainly be destroyed by the superior British Navy. But this act of heroism, as he saw it, was to be the last great event in the history of the German Navy. Well, when these intentions were made clear to the sailors, they would have none of it. And mutiny began to break out in the German seaports. And early in November, this suddenly crystallised into a revolutionary movement. Sailors seized their ships, arrested or killed their officers. And in ports like Hamburg and Kiel and other major German ports, the fleet mutinied entirely. They formed what were called Sailors' Soviets, 
This is just one year after the Russian Revolution, remember? And the idea of a revolution on the Soviet model had now seized the German sailors. Within days, they were joined by mutinous soldiers. And all across Germany, especially in Berlin, mutiny and revolution broke out. Much of it, as in Russia a year earlier, poorly organised and with no real plan of campaign. The German socialists attempted to place themselves now at the head of this movement, having gone along with the war, but out of this came the creation in Germany, uh, as elsewhere, of a communist party who attempted to seize power in Berlin. The Kaiser, by the way, was stranded by these events at a military base in Belgium. And in the first week of November, the Kaiser, who had lost contact, in a sense, with what was happening in Germany, was told by his military that he should flee to Holland and seek asylum there. What prompted this, in a way, in 1918, was that three or four months before, the Russian royal family had all been executed in Russia. Suddenly, it was made very clear to the Kaiser that he might be about to suffer the same fate. At the end of the first week of November, he was peremptorily told by his military to go to Holland, and he did. One evening after dinner, they were suddenly put on a special train, taken from Belgium to a place on the Dutch border, and the royal train steamed into Holland, carrying the German royal family, well, carrying the Kaiser and some of his uh, family members. Uh, his wife was stranded in Potsdam in the royal palace where she'd been caught by the revolution. And the whole of Germany was now consumed. The Kaiser was gone. The socialists proclaimed a republic in Berlin in an attempt to take power and head off the revolution in a way. Um, the news of the German events had shaken all of Europe. In Vienna and in Budapest, where conditions were just as terrible, hunger and poverty and disease. And by the way, as if to add one more disaster to European life, there had appeared a few months earlier a new virulent form of influenza, which was caused the, called the Spanish flu, but in fact... We know now it came from the United States and was, oddly enough, probably brought to Europe by American soldiers, the first, because the United States had entered the war the year before. This terrible flu epidemic, a pandemic, swept the world. In Australia, for instance, we lost over 50,000 men in the First World War, and a few women too, but it was mostly a male death row. Within a few months, the Spanish flu reached Australia with homecoming soldiers, by the way, and over 12,000 Australians died, and the nation was paralysed. The flu affected everybody. Millions of people came down with a form of the flu, but in Europe where conditions, medical conditions, food supplies were so desperately bad, the consequences of the Spanish flu in some countries were almost as bad as the war, the war deaths themselves. So this terrible event came to people like a sort of apocalypse. After four years of war, nobody could believe what they were seeing in their own lives.
in terms of the flu. So by the beginning of November, it was at a moment of collapse and a, a new government was formed in Germany and in the first days of November, they uh, approached the Allies through the Swiss with a view to seeking what they called an armistice. That was an end to the hostilities. And it famously, on a date that's still commemorated, uh, on the 11th day of the 11th month and the 11th hour of the 11th day, the First World War came to an end with Germany's surrender. A few days earlier, by the way, an almost identical event had occurred in Vienna. The Habsburg Emperor, Karl, and his wife and family uh, again faced the same fate, perhaps, as the Russian monarchy. And again, they left Vienna. Revolution had broken out in Vienna. Again, a Soviet Republic had been proclaimed, both in Vienna and in Budapest whereas the Hungarians now decided to leave the old Austro-Hungarian Empire altogether and become independent. And the old Austro-Hungarian Empire simply disintegrated. The Czechs proclaimed their independence. The Bosnians, the, the other people like the Slovenians who'd made up the old Habsburg Empire, which was a patchwork quilt of different nationalities and languages, in Eastern Europe and stretched from Vienna and Austria right to the Black Sea and to the Mediterranean. All of this collapsed in the first 10 days of November. In Budapest, a revolutionary liberal group seized power, proclaimed a Hungarian Republic and were then promptly overthrown by a communist group who instituted for about a year a communist government in Budapest until it too was overthrown by a very reactionary military group. This happened everywhere across Europe. In Vienna, the socialists took power. In a curious moment, the old government of the Habsburg Emperor and the socialists sat down together to see how they could restore some sort of order to Vienna where the people were on the verge of starvation. The emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Karl, left with his family for Switzerland, never returned. Uh, he died a few years later and he, his wife, Elizabeth, survived to a great age, living to nearly a hundred years, to spend her life in Switzerland. The old order in Europe had collapsed everywhere. And by 1918, by the first year of the peace, the war had brought down the empires in Berlin, in Vienna, and of course, the collapse of the Sultan in Turkey followed immediately. And so 1918 ended in a year of absolutely unprecedented revolution in Europe and all sorts of new institutions and new crises would arise from that event. And thanks to Brian McKinley, historian and author. And the time right now is 4.34. Representing... The 3CR annual Radiothon is almost here and we're celebrating 40 years of Radical Radio. Between June 6th and 19th, we're asking you to help us stay on air for another 40 years. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference. All donations over $2 are tax deductible. 
To donate, just call 03 9419 8377 or online at 3cr.org.au. Help keep this mighty station going strong for many more years to come. In November last year, the federal government announced its shortlist for sites for Australia's first nuclear waste dump to store low and intermediate level nuclear waste. And in April, the announcement that the Flinders Ranges had been selected as the preferred site. Surprise, surprise, the traditional owners of the land, the Anyamatnya people, the people of the rock, were not consulted. Yesterday I spoke with one of the traditional elders, Regina McKenzie, who are on their way here to Melbourne for a public meeting tonight and asked her first to talk about the cultural heritage of her people in terms of connection to that land. The land in question, I live right next door on Yapla Station, the area that's been proposed site. We actually still work like we've got our storylines that go through there. We've got one registered storyline that goes through there, but we've also got the other storylines that go over and overlap it. And also our archaeological sites in that area. Actually, we've got the biggest density site in South Australia. Has that land been disturbed before? It's just been a cattle farm. When did you first find out that your land was one of those that the government was considering? When the six sites were announced. And what was your reaction? Well, I was shocked, actually, because we've been working with two state departments in that area, also been working with Mr Chapman to get the sites protected. He actually owns the land, Wallabadina. Him and I think it's Phil Spickman. We were actually working with these people. We had a working relationship between us and, and the two state departments, government departments, and the Warriors. What did you do once you found out? Where did you go? Who did you speak to? I called State Department. They just found out at the same time as I did as well. And what are you doing now? You've been having public meetings. Have you met with anyone yet? Yeah, we're working with the um, Conservation Council of South Australia. We've had really good support with them. They've come up and supported us, and Dave Sweeney. Also, Andrew Vorff with the Xenophon team. He's been really good support, and, and same as Eddie Youth, local Labor bloke. I believe it's unstable land in the sense of earthquakes. Can you explain that? There's actually five major fault lines that go in through that area. And if you were to have a look, there's a lot of advanced stuff. And it's also a flooding area as well. It, it floods. Told other people about this? Oh, yes. We've submitted our water report and our cycle report to the government and it's all been ignored. Just like that? Just like that. Only two years ago, we actually had a, an earthquake 4.7 on the Richter scale. The area that's been proposed, uh, that was the epicenter of it. A foundation has been more lifted up. I don't see how they can put up a building with nuclear waste, especially intermediate waste, in, in there and, and it'd be safe. Have you had public meetings in Adelaide over this? Yes, fundraisers and stuff in Adelaide at the um, joinery. We've also had meetings in Corn. We've had meetings back up on Yapala, back home. We say no to the waste dump. You're on your way to Melbourne now. What's planned for Melbourne? We're going to do some talk to some people, and also we're going to go and see Mr. Seidenberg. He's a minister on innovation in science. And you've got a meeting with him. Yep, we're going to we're going to say to him why we don't want waste dump, and hopefully that he'll see our side of the story why why we don't want it, and why why this place is so significant to us. We're going to fight it. I'm hoping that they drop it. But the thing is, is that myself and Judy Warner, which is my family corporation, 
which owns capital properties, we're, we're going to fight it, and so is large amount of people. And you'll be in Melbourne tomorrow, Tuesday? Yep. What have you got planned for here, apart from meeting the Minister? There's a public meeting? I'm pretty sure we'll be having some public meetings in around the place as well, yeah. What's your message to the people listening? What would you like people to do? My message um, to the people listening is that we should have no waste up, not just in my, not in my backyard, but not, not in anybody's backyard. And also Australia itself, we are not the dumping ground of, of the rest of the world and we do not need a poison that's going to be around for forever. Money runs out, that poison is there forever. And of course the people of South Australia have got a long history of nuclear stuff. Yes, the, what Maralinga have done, it affected not only just the people within the Maralinga area, it affected people in the Flinders Ranges, up in the uh, Data area. A lot of people died with radiation sickness from Maralinga. We Aboriginal people here in South Australia, we will never forget Maralinga. It's always there. We just don't want it no more. It's not good. And it's also in the past, um, Aboriginal people, like where I come from, where I'm living on the Yapla Range, the um, early settlers actually gave Aboriginal people blankets that were infected with smallpox and they poison Aboriginal people out. This is just another one of the government poisoning, not just Aboriginal people this time, but even the pastors, they're putting poison back in this land, and we don't want it. And there are uranium mines in your area? Yes, there's two. You fought those as well? Yeah, um, those were actually forced onto the argument of the people because government keeps saying is that it's for the better good of the um, wider community. But me, myself, I'm against uranium mining as well. What they should be doing is if they want to reduce this waste, they should be storing it where it's produced. Is that your point of view? If they stopped mining uranium, we wouldn't have this waste. When it's from the hospitals? In the hospitals and stuff, why can't they put more money into finding a natural cure for cancer rather than working with radiation? Because what radiation does, it does a lot, a lot of damage to, to healthy skin. It actually brings on more cancers and sometimes it kills the people. We should get back to our, our natural um, therapies and stuff. And I, and I believe there is a cure out there that they can find and they should put the money into finding that cure for cancer. Don't use this thing about cancer as an emotional blackmail onto people like I have had people who've passed away with cancer. It was that radiation therapy that actually took the people from us. OK, well, good luck for your trip back to Melbourne and the public meeting when you're here tomorrow. All right, thank you. Have a nice day. And that's Regina McKenzie. I spoke with her on her way through to Melbourne yesterday morning. And that public meeting is tonight. It's at the Northcote Town Hall, High Street Northcote, just up the hill. It um, starts at 6, but I'm sure you can be a little bit late. It'll go for quite a while. It's called Nuclear Frontiers, Frontlines, The Politics of Radioactive Racism. That's tonight, the 24th of May, 6pm, at the Northcote Town Hall. I'm Jermaine Greer, and you're listening to 3CR, Treaty Now. Continuing with the contribution of some of the participants at the recent one-day symposium in the eye of the storm, Palestine and the new media. Paul Duffield is a senior scholar at the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney University. Today I'm going to talk about why boycott, division, sanctions 
and why free speech about boycott, divestment and sanctions may well be the best hope for both peace and human rights in Israel and Palestine. New Media presents the opportunity to challenge the artificial dichotomy by the Israeli government and its supporters, and often accepted, as we've discussed this morning, unquestionably by the conventional media, that the promotion of basic human rights for Palestinians there is, is, is somehow a barrier for peace. That somehow the promotion of basic human rights for Palestinians is separate from and contradictory to the promotion of peace in Israel and Palestine. This could not be further from the truth. Violent conflict drives human rights abuses and human rights abuses and reactions to human rights abuses drive conflict and further violence. I'm going to talk about how boycott recent sanctions is a responsible, evidence-based approach, which is particularly important given the abysmal and continual failure of so-called official peace initiatives and how the boycott divestment sanctions campaign acknowledges that addressing human rights can be a powerful driver for peace and enables peoples globally both elites and non-elites to positively contribute to, to these peace efforts my background in peace and conflict studies is really why i came to see why boycott divestment sanctions is so is, is so important and i think so interesting and particularly my work is working as a trainer for dialogue and conflict resolution so I started my interest in training in peace and conflict studies about 20 years ago in the um, non-violent martial art of Aikido. That really got me sort of interested in the connections really between human rights and peace and the idea that we can promote the rights and human rights of the victim while still being concerned about and still having compassion for what might be termed as the oppressor. As um, Randa was mentioning this morning, how Randa was talking about dealing with the narrative of the victim in Western society where there's a dominant narrative where the victim which should be docile and passive, silent, and as I used to refer to in my um, very private school in, in New Zealand, turn the other cheek. Aikido really introduced me to the idea that we can respond in a practical, non-violent, safe way, an effective way, but not by turning the other cheek, by being actively resistant, but also being compassionate to what might be turned as the other. The approach of one of the founders of Peace and Conflict Studies has been really influential with me. He's a Norwegian academic, Johan Galtung, and I think he provides a very helpful way of explaining what's happening in Israel-Palestine, and in a, not just helpful, but a very practical way of looking at this. I mean, for me, working in Peace and Conflict Studies is both optimistic and pragmatic. If I was interested in theory and problems, I'd probably be studying something like the philosophy of philosophy. And so I'm very wary as well that often academics, for a range of reasons, will be sort of bitten by the bug that we might refer to as paralysis by analysis and be very hesitant academics and other talking heads might be very hesitant about putting forward an idea that might actually work, that might actually change things. So Johan Galtung, one of the founding fathers of peace and conflict studies, one of the hallmarks of his approach is honing in on the unarticulated assumptions and contradictions that drive a conflict. I think when we're talking about Israel-Palestine, one of those key assumptions that is no doubt driving the conflict and the violence is the all too common assumption that Jewish people will only be safe if they live in a country where Jews dominate over non-Jews. This is the concrete reality that sort of hides behind that very euphemistic term, a Jewish state, that many supporters of Israel and the Israeli government just sort of casually drop into conversation as though it's sort of common sense. But of course, the idea that one ethno-religious group would dominate over all other ethno-religious groups is fundamentally undemocratic. So, of course, in addition to the illegal occupation of Palestinian land within Israel itself, within internationally recognized Israel, I should say, there are, of course, over 50 laws that um, Israeli NGO Adala has documented, which discriminate against people based on the fact that they're not Jewish. Only the most well-known examples of this is, of course, a law of return, where if a Jewish person can, or I should say a person can convince Israeli state bureaucrats they are sufficiently Jewish, 
whatever that means, they automatically qualify for citizenship. Suffice to say that this right does not extend to Palestinians whose families have lived on the land for centuries. So the idea that that Jewish people will only be safe if they live in a country where Jews dominate over non-Jews, that's something we refer to in negotiation practice as being stuck on a position. In this sense, a position is a potential solution that we have, which can only be satisfied in one way. In this example, having a country where there is a lack of basic equality before the law, where there is entrenched domination of Jews over non-Jews. So often what we find in very complex, difficult negotiation is the basic legitimate needs that people have. For instance, Palestinians and Israelis' legitimate need for safety and security, those basic needs become enmeshed and people stop being able to see the light between those basic needs of safety and security and the position that is being touted by the dominant narratives, in this case, a Jewish state. And you've noticed that often when this is mentioned in interviews with the media and that sort of thing, that this term is, is, is hardly ever interrogated or questioned or sort of any sort of criticism of it. There was an interview with uh, Peter Slezak and then there was a member of the Israel lobby, I think it was Nick, Nick Dyferth, I think last year. And Nick Dyferth you know, mentioned how he supported a Jewish state. And the, the journalist just completely bypassed it, you know, didn't even batter an eyelid and just went, went on to you know, criticising why BDS is a terrible idea. There is, of course, um, unhelpful positions on groups that are critical of Israel or that um, promote violence against Israelis. For example, some Palestinian groups or other groups that might argue that the only way that Palestinians would be safe and secure would be if Jews were eliminated from the land of Israel or historical Palestine. So there are problematic positions, right? I'm not saying that the, the, the assumption that the only way that Jews will be safe is if Jews dominate over non-Jews. I'm not saying that's the only problematic assumption, problematic position, but the key issue for us in Australia is that the Australian government provides massive support and funding to organisations that are actively involved, involved in promoting that problematic Israeli government position. For instance, uh, over the last 10 years, if you've paid taxes, everyone, everyone who's paid taxes here, congratulations. Your tax money have been used to fund over $1.5 billion in contracts to Israeli arms companies. $1.5 billion, that's billion with a B. $1.5 billion over 10 years. Can we imagine that any of that sort of money would go towards Palestinian arms companies? It's unimaginable, isn't it? Added to that is, of course, the many public statements by Julie Bishop and George Brandis saying that e either Palestine isn't occupied or that the occupation is somehow not illegal under international law. And there's a wonderful article written by a colleague of ours, Professor Ben Saul, a wonderful Jewish Australian jurist at the University of Sydney, professor of international law, he should know, answering Julie Bishop's claim, you know, show me the law that shows that the occupation and the settlements are illegal. And Professor Ben Saul says, okay, Julie, here you go, I will. And he proceeds to list them. And he ends his article by saying, by expressing his being exacerbated by how embarrassed he is. He says, every other country seems to know the international law. Why doesn't our own foreign minister? So that's really one of the issues here is that we have this deep double standard here. Even though, of course, there is violence on, on, on a number of sides. I don't say both sides because there's not just two sides, right? But the fact is the, 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 the activities of the Australian government and the Australian taxpayer, through, without our choice, is being put behind the violence of one particular party, and that's the Israeli government and its supporters. Of course, the Australian government provides a wide range of sanctions against countries in Israel's neighbourhood who have terrible human rights records. We're talking about countries having sanctions against countries and groups in Syria, Iraq, 
Yemen, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Iran, Libya, and of course a range of Palestinian groups. Although, of course, one country in the region with a highly problematic human rights record stands out as being conspicuously immune to Australian sanctions. That one country is Israel. Instead of sanctions, of course, we have massive funding of what I mentioned, that $1.5 billion over 10 years. We have massive funding of Israel's arms companies. That principal um, arms company that the Australian government, the Australian taxpayer funds is called Albert Systems. Albert Systems provides spying equipment for the illegal wall that's built throughout the West Bank. So the connections there and the double standard there is very real and I think very important. For us in Australia and other countries that actively support Israeli violence, this is where I think the boycott divestment sanctions campaign comes in. You've got to remember that the essence of any boycott, whether you agree with it or not, is about one thing. It's about withdrawing support. That's why the boycott divestment sanctions campaign is so relevant for Australia, because we're already supporting them. And I think this is something that's very difficult for the sort of talking heads in the Western media and academia and policy government and stuff, is that there's that sort of that white saviour complex, you know, that, that has been alluded to this morning. And it's so deeply embedded in Western culture that we even see it on shows like Game of Thrones. And the, the idea that we somehow have to, have, to, have to jump in and save these poor local native people from the problems they're having. And we've got the solution. We know what it is. Let's jump in there and save them. Boycott investment sanctions is actually doesn't buy into this narrative. And I think that's why there's a lot of criticism from it from international governments. As it says, and this is something that I guess is very difficult for a lot of politicians to accept and a lot of government to accept. Before we go ahead and tell other people what to do, let's be pragmatic realistic and ethical, let's first take a look at our own behavior. What behavior are we doing, are we already doing, which is making the situation worse? That's why boycotts, recent sanctions are so important, because it starts with our own behavior. Without telling people, Israelis and Palestinians and other people in the region, how they can fix their problems, let's first get our own house in order. And unfortunately, a lot of politicians are less interested in that than pointing the finger. So part of my research is looking at what are the common conditions for effective dialogue and negotiation? How do we know when dialogue and negotiation is likely to work? What I would sort of define as a sort of a Stevie Wonderian approach. I think that the Australian government and its, and its allies have that Stevie Wonderian approach to peace and dialogue and negotiation in Israel-Palestine. You know, that Stevie Wonder's wonderful line, when you believe in things you don't understand, you will suffer very superstitious. So unfortunately, the Australian government and its allies have adopted a very superstitious approach to dialogue negotiation. They think it's wonderful, they think it's amazing, but they're not really willing to talk about how it can actually happen. They're hoping that just this time, you know, for the 99 times or 999 times when they've had dialogue partners together and it hasn't worked, maybe on the 1,000th time by magic from the heavens, suddenly perhaps the dialogue and negotiation will be effective. But of course, when we look at the research from what we know about effective dialogue and negotiation, there are clearly set out conditions from a whole range of disciplines. Yeah, we're talking sociology, political science, peace building, conflict resolution, international relations on what actually works. What are the conditions where dialogue and negotiation work? One of those first conditions is that the parties need to find themselves in a stalemate. There needs to be relatively equal power where the parties are in a stalemate. Now, that sounds like common sense, right? Apparently, unless you're the Australian government and its allies. That's one of the very well-established conditions. The second condition is that the parties need to, be sen need to sense a way out. So if you like, the stalemate is the push and the way out is the pull. Okay, the way out where... They can meet their basic, basic needs and human rights in a way that will be safe and secure for them. Clearly, under the present circumstances, neither of those conditions of a stalemate or a way out are present for the Palestinians or for that, for that matter for Israelis. Of course, the, the Israeli government's tactics on using dialogue 
to actually stifle dialogue, sort of a perverse, sort of a reverse Zen sort of approach to it, if you like, was outlined by outgoing Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir in 1992. And he candidly remarked in the New York Times that if he had remained in office, he would have dragged out peace negotiations in order to buy time to dramatically increase Jewish settlements in the Palestinian territories. He actually said this on record. Since then, of course, we've seen his plan and this prognosis play out. Since 1992, the settlement population in the occupied territories has more than doubled during the so-called peace process. And of course, last year, Israel's then housing minister, Yuri Ariel, predicted that the number of settlements would increase by 40% by 2019. So we've got the surreal situation where we've got peace talks and negotiations happening while the Israeli government and its allies are actively undermining the conditions for successful peace talks. And where the language of peace is actually being used to block peace. So during this Oslo peace process, we have the dramatic increase in settlements. And of course, when you have an illegal occupation of a foreign people's land, of another land, and you have a dramatic increase of settlements, that represents a dramatic breaking of equal power. Yeah, the power becomes even more imbalanced, even less of a stalemate, and peace becomes even further away, and Palestinians are presented with even less of a way out. Now, of course, I'm not talking in the way that Palestinians are somehow passive victims here and that the Western countries need, need, need to fly in and save the situation. I think what we need to do in, in the term what we might loosely call Western countries is first take a look at our own behaviour and acknowledge that actually our own behaviour, for example, the Australian government's 1.5 billion over 10 years, is actually pushing the parties away from peace. If you, even if you don't want to talk about human rights, right? Even if people are terrified of the idea of Palestinians having basic human rights, if you want to talk about peace, well, often those people who are the progressive except Palestine that we've talked about there, even if you're interested and fixated on this idea of dialogue, conflict resolution and peace, then the settlements don't make sense and BDS does. As Israeli historian Avi Shleim colourfully put it, Israel actually has no incentive to conclude an agreement with the Palestinians. Rather, it sees it in its interests, in Israel's interests, to draw out negotiations, like a man who pretends to negotiate over the division of a pizza while he keeps eating it. If the current situation prevents no adverse stalemate for Israeli military and government, it likewise presents no way out for Palestinians. This, of course, was dramatically demonstrated in the publication of the Palestine Papers back in 2011, where we saw that the Palestine Papers showed the dramatic concessions that Palestinian negotiators felt like they were forced to give to offer their Israeli negotiating counterparts. When those dramatic concessions were actually made public to the Palestinian public, they were widely rejected by Palestinian negotiators own Palestinian constituents. Of course, and much has been made of Benjamin Netanyahu's pledge during the last Israeli election campaign that there will be no Palestinian state. This has, of course, been established in the Likud Charter since 1977, and it hasn't been revised either. Of course, the Likud Charter sets out clearly the Jordan River will be the permanent eastern border of the state of Israel. That's the Jordan River, which is a border with the country of Jordan, not the border with the West Bank. And the Likud Charter also sets out the government of Israel flatly rejects the establishment of a Palestinian state west of the Jordan River. So we need to ask ourselves, why is our taxpayers' money being used to support these sort of policies? And why are statements being made that are coming from our politicians who, of course, are paid by us? Even people who aren't passionate about human rights for Palestinians, there's something of a financial cost for Australia here too. Of course, the financial cost isn't the most important or the only most important thing, but I think we need to think about how we can relate the value of what's happening to people who are not already inside the tent, already not converted, if you like. Of course, the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Campaign works to bring about this equalised power and this stalemate and a way out. 
these conditions which are absolutely critical for effective dialogue and negotiation. Of course, the three aims of the boycott recent sanctions movement are ending the occupation and colonization of all Arab lands occupied in June 1967 and dismantling the wall, recognizing the fundamental rights of Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel to full equality. This is, of course, really critical. We talked about the 50 laws in Israel that discriminate against people. This is Israel proper, not just in the West Bank, that discriminate against people on the fact that they just happen not to be Jewish. And the third goal of the boycott recent change campaign, respecting, promoting and protecting the rights of Palestinian refugees to return to their home and properties they fled or expelled from, as stipulated in UN Resolution 194. So these three goals are obviously very important for peace in terms of Israel and Palestine, but it's also critical for regional security and regional peace as well. So there's an initiative that was put forward by the Arab League and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation called the Arab Peace Initiative, launched in 2002. The interesting thing is, is that the conditions, the, the, the aims of BDS very closely map onto those conditions for peace laid out in the Arab Peace Initiative, including an end to the occupation and a just resolution for Palestinian refugees. This is really why, for me, as a peace academic, I came across and I came over to boycott divestment sanctions, because I saw that contrary to the what, for me, as, as a specialist in the era, is ridiculous and irresponsible dominant narrative that human rights active advocacy is somehow contradictory to peace, boycotts of Eastern sanctions provides a practical way for us to move forward and to promote peace in ways that we're not just dependent on the actions of government and the whims of government, but something that we can actively take part in ourselves. And we've seen it with the wonderful successes against businesses which have been abusing Palestinian human rights, like we're talking about Veolia, we're talking about Ahava, we're talking about G4S. And those companies are not small, right? Like, um, I was reading one of these um, lovely puff pieces that the UK security company G4S had commissioned in a sort of a man's sort of muscle magazine, you know. I was just browsing at the supermarket, I promise. G4S was proudly touting the fact that, and get this, it's the third largest employer in the world. This is big bickies. The fact that the Boycott of Recent Sanctions campaign has encouraged this massive multinational security company who, it's probably not surprising, doesn't have a wonderful respect for human rights in other, other parts of the world either, including, you've got to remember, G4S was actually, and, and this, this is sort of, sort of blow you away, G4S was disallowed by the coalition government in Australia for running the detention camps because its human rights abuses were too bad. This is the sort of company who has been encouraged to behave in an ethical way by the boycott of recent sanctions campaign, the third largest employer in the world. So I'll just close with, I think, some, what I came back to, I think, so that we're not getting stuck on this paralysis by analysis and sort of you know as Stuart says making sure we're not you know criticizing the um, ship's navigation as the ship is going down I think there are some wonderful signs for opportunities and progress in the Australian media scape and the public opinion now of course any all of these opportunities come with qualifications and people will probably want to shoot their hands up with qualifications the moment that I mention them but I think it's important to think about obviously the problems and the issues are important but where are the levers available that we can maybe pull to help get some change? It's obviously very important to understand the issues and the problems and that sort of thing. And, of course, us academics love to do that. It's a lot easier than us, than us academics putting our head on the chopping block and actually coming up with a positive proposal, which is perhaps why the boycott of some sanctions campaign comes from civil society. Well, some of these important signs of progress, I think, is the fact that settlements are being increasingly criticised by international governments, and we're talking Israel's allies, the US, Canada... New Zealand, and the settlements have been criticised for actually inhibiting the peace process. And if you look at the statements, even by that wonderful expressor of truth and everything that is true, 
the White House press secretary, he seems to be becoming visibly, increasingly pissed off by having to completely restate this position. And every time he's restated it, even during you know, January when Israel was announcing a lot of expansions of settlements, he kept on saying that the U.S.'s long-held position is that the settlements are negative to peace. Do not help the peace process. Now the U.S. official line has, has started to become the settlements have been designed to kneecap the peace process, to inhibit the peace process. And we've seen similar comments by Canada, by New Zealand. I think that's one important thing, and I think that we, it's something that we really need to try and push and hit when we're writing about this. By the way, Australia's allies agree that the settlements do not help the peace process, and this is something that I'm trying to sort of massage into my opinion pieces that I put to habitually cautious and fairly terrified opinion editors of left-wing newspapers in Australia. Another thing, another op wonderful opportunity is the fact that Netanyahu and his cabinet have actually come out and, and publicly rejected the peace process. So I think the fact that that's a lot less ambiguous now and a lot more clear is something that we can build on and to show that even the Israeli government is not working super strongly towards peace and is actually working to undermine it. And that's Paul Duffield, who's um, a senior scholar at the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney University, and he was um, at the recent symposium, a one-day symposium, in the eye of the storm, Palestine and the new media. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. February 25, 2016 marked the 30th anniversary of the end of the brutal, corrupt Marcos dictatorship known as the EDSA Uprising. Sonny Merlinkio, veteran activist and currently the chairperson of the Party of the Labouring Masses, played a part in that uprising. He was in Australia recently to participate in the Marxism 2016 conference in Sydney and while in Melbourne last Friday, joined me in the studio. Today, the first part of the interview, looking at the Marcos years in power, and next week, the unfinished revolution and the new president. Sonia, what I'd like you to do is talk about the years of that dictatorship, what that period meant for the people of the Philippines in terms of human rights, the economy and dependency on the US. But first, how did he first come to power? Was he from one of the few families who have held power in the Philippines for all those years? Marcos was a senator before he became the president in uh, 62, I think. And then so he was elected president around that time. But he declared martial law in 1972. There was supposed to be a new election to uh, elect a new president, and he was not allowed to do that. And so the only means that he could continue to be in power was to declare martial law. Was he one of the, the 40 families who controlled the Philippines at that time? 
Uh, he's not actually one of that, the so-called oligarchy. That's why uh, when he declared martial law, one of the reasons that he gave, aside from fighting the left, was basically to fight the oligarchy. And he was referring to the landed elite because his vice president at the time was a Lopez who actually was a landed elite. And so he used that to ease them out of power and to control the economy and politics in the country. He formed a new elite. That's why uh, there was so-called Novo Rich uh, during the time of Marcos, and it was composed of his family, his relatives, and the generals in the army. Can you talk a bit more about that? It's 12 years, wasn't it? Because it's two six-year terms. How did that impact on the people? This is the time before he took martial law. What what was he like in that 12 years? Uh, Well, in those 12 years, he was like uh, any president. There was already corruption at the time because there was a lot of projects he set up together with his wife, Imelda. And uh, one of his uh, biggest rivals was then-Senator Benigno Aquino, who was assassinated in 1984. Benigno Aquino uh, actually exposed the corruption around the uh, Marcoses, Ferdinand Marcos and his wife. And at the time, it was also in the late 60s, that there was some sort of developing protests among the people, especially among the students, also on the background of the Vietnam War and the sending of uh, Philippine army troops to Vietnam. So the students also did a lot of rallies and uh, activities against the government. Uh, The highlight of it was sort of a student rebellion that happened on January 30 to 31, which uh, Marcos used. At first, he suspended the writ of habeas corpus to arrest the student leaders, and uh, later on, he uh, he declared martial law in 1972. Was the U.S. also using the Philippines during the Vietnam War? Yes, the U.S. had uh, the two largest military bases in the Philippines at the time, the Clark Air Base and the Subic Base, the naval base. Uh, The U.S. was using that to send troops, and also to bomb uh, Vietnam. And then later on, uh, the Philippines also sent its own troops to uh, Vietnam, also on the instigation of the United States. So the United States was very much in alliance with Marcos, and when Marcos declared martial law, the U.S. uh, business group and the U.S. government were the first ones to congratulate Marcos. Was the assassination of Aquino, the match that lit the fire that began the revolution? In a way, because uh, in 1984, uh, it sort of uh, it started the big uh, rallies against the dictatorship, so it was joined in. It was not only the basic sectors that were protesting at the time. Uh, it was joined in by the middle classes and also the upper classes who were fed up with the way Marcos was... Uh, running the country, and especially because of the assassination of uh, Benigno Aquino, because the even this uh, uh, anti-Marcos elite uh, were actually looking for Aquino as the probable leader that would replace Marcos during that time. He obviously made a big mistake by having him killed. Yes, yes, uh, uh, because it's uh, uh, the, the army was involved and it was uh, uh, all over the papers and uh, there were big... Uh, rallies, protests, and during the funeral of Benigno Aquino, 
a million of people joined the funeral. It was the longest, largest funeral march at the time, and it was not reported in the papers. So there was a blackout of the news. What was in the news the day after was the killing of one person who went up the trees to look at the long march, and a lightning struck him. And that was the main news and not the funeral, the longest funeral march that happened at the time. Why do you believe he was such a threat? I mean, there must have been other people who were opposing Marcos. Why did he focus on him? He was quite a charismatic figure because, you see, before Marcos declared martial law, he was in the opposition. I think he was with the Liberal Party at the time and Marcos was with the Nationalista Party. So everyone was thinking of, had Marcos not declared martial law, he would win the election, Benigno Aquino. So people remember that. So even during martial law, when he was incarcerated, put in prison, there was an interview that uh, w- happened, and I think it was in the 1978 interim Batasang Pambansa elections, where uh, Benigno Aquino, although he was in jail, ran for Congress and uh, for the IBP. During that interview that uh, happened, uh, was done in his cell, a big number of people, you know, listened to the radio and watched the TV. So it was to show the support for uh, Benigno Aquino against Marcos. And then he, he went into hunger strike to press for his release. I think uh, it was on his... Uh, days, you know, when he was very sick, that he was uh, allowed to go out of the country by Imelda. And then uh, he recuperated in the United States. And uh, when he came back, that's when he was assassinated because he was not supposed to come back without the uh, agreement of the Marcoses. Yes, he was assassinated at the tarmac of the airport. And how long after did Corey decide that she'd run instead? Corey went back. Uh, she was also in the U.S. when uh, uh, Benigno Aquino was assassinated. So she went back to the Philippines. So there was also a long queue at the wake where his body was held. And then Corey sort of decided to join the uh, mass movement against Marcos because of what happened to, his, uh, to her husband. And uh, she was courted by the opposition elite. And uh, when Marcos was pressed to declare a snap election, Cory Aquino became the uh, rival candidate. She says she won. She yes, said uh, it was fraud. Uh, yes, uh, she won basically, but in the official tallying of the votes, she lost because it was a dictatorship. So the voting was punctuated by a group of uh, canvassers boycotting, leaving the, the voting station because they there was cheating going on. What uh, Cory Aquino did, even though she was not proclaimed the winner, she called for a big rally at the Luneta. Uh, it was around um, more than a million people who went there, and Cory Aquino declared herself the winner. And I think that turned the tide on because people believed her. But it still took another two years to get rid of... Yes, yes, it took a military rebellion. So there was a military rebellion in uh, 1986, February 1986, because at the time the military was also wanting to change the setup. And so that was supported by the head of the national defense in Drilly at the time and the chief of the uh, Philippine Constabulary, who became the president after Cory Aquino. 
uh, FBR, Ramos, and uh, so the military rebelled and the people joined in a um, must up at the two camps at EDSA. So that's why it's called the EDSA Revolution. It was Camp Krame of the PNP or the PC at the time, Philippine Constabulary, and the uh, Camp Aguinaldo of the Philippine Army. And uh, so people massed up in their thousands, and later on it was million, to support the rebellion. And that was when uh, Marcos uh, had to flee because it had very popular support. I'll take you back and ask you what you were doing over those years. What was your involvement in the opposition to Marcos as a maybe a really young person, a student? How did it work through for you? I was a, a member of the student group at the time, and also then I became an organizer in the community. So when martial law was declared, we were the first ones to build the underground movement to fight the dictatorship. Were you in Manila? Manila. Manila. Yep. I was arrested, and but I was not uh, brought to the safe house. I was abducted, in a sense, by the military, and I was brought to their uh, safe house and tortured for days. But I was uh, able to escape on the 11th day, and uh, when I escaped, I, I resumed my role in the underground and become part of the underground till the downfall of Ferdinand Marcos, or the Marcoses, in 1986. How did you escape? I escaped because I was able to free my hands because I was manacled to the bed when my captors were not there uh, in the room. And then I jumped, uh, I think it was 10 feet high, uh, second floor of the building, and then I ran towards the street, and then I was able to escape by just uh, getting some car to, to get me to my destination. It was a long story, but I managed to escape and rejoined my comrades in the underground. And who were your comrades? How many? Well, uh, one of it became the leader of the, uh, it was quite well-known, uh, Popoy Lagman, uh, became the leader of the Manila Rizal uh, Regional Communist Party, because we were part of the Communist Party at the time. And, and so it was the regional committee that was uh, involved in the Manila Rizal uh, region, Metro Manila region, actually. How could you operate underground? What did you do? Well, we're actually, uh, we, ha- we had an underground network, so uh, groups of uh, people uh, staying together. We shifted from one place to uh, places to places, but we organized discreetly the community, labor, especially labor at the time. And uh, so the first mass actions uh, happened in 1975. It was a strike of the workers which turned into general strikes. We organized that in a way. And there were also community rallies, community activities, which we also uh, organized. And by doing that, we built the backbone of the underground movement. And those who couldn't operate in the open arena because of the repression at the time, they we send them to the province to join the New People's Army, become part of the uh, guerrilla. So we were quite connected with the guerrilla movement too, although the guerrilla movement was based in the countryside. Can you talk more about the what the guerrilla movement did and how important they were in those years leading up to 1986? We all believe at the time that the only way that we can depose Mar- Marcos was through armed struggle because all the legal arena were closed. And uh, so we built up what was called the New People's Army in the provinces. We started with nine provinces, and then later on it uh, uh, grew. 
and develop into several regions. It was actually led by the student movement because many of the student leaders who started the student revolt in Metro Manila became the leaders of the New People's Army. And so the situation then was that all those who could not operate in the cities would uh, be sent to the countryside to build the guerrilla army. I became a member of the guerrilla army uh, for a short while, and it was in the Zambales Mountains. Usually what we do was just we just organize the people from, you know, traveling from mountains to mountains, organizing the barrios, the villages, communities, to build secret governments and to fight the army, Philippine army, where they operate. And then just to continue building the base, because our tactic then was to develop our strength in the countryside by surrounding the cities for a final showdown. That strategy did not work because what happened was Marcos was opposed uh, through people's power in 1986. What about the people in the, the rural areas? What were their conditions like at that time? Philippines was basically all the land was taken, uh, big lands were taken by the elite. So uh, we were operated in villages where there were haciendas or in some mining operations. And then so the people that we work with are farmers, small farmers, agricultural workers. In some areas, we organized them to lower the rent that the landlord was getting from them. We could not distribute the land because then we were just starting to build a force. So it would attract uh, military forces if we do that. So it was mostly around that time, lowering the rent, talking with the landlords, sort of threatening them if they did not uh, agree to what the uh, farmers want. So usually uh, that would uh, strengthen our links with the farmers and uh, organize them into groups that support the army. Were there many clashes with the military? Yes, uh, but uh, in my case, uh, I did not experience that much. It was just uh, uh, going around. There were some military operations which happened, but uh, we just uh, went around, you know, going from one place to another to uh, protect uh, our groups while we continue organizing the farmers. Was there any support coming from outside the country? Not really. We expected during the first period of the building of the guerrilla army, we were expecting some armed support from China, but it was during the time when the so-called Gang of Four was uh, the one uh, leading the Chinese Communist Party. So at the time, I think there was some promise of support, armed support, to be given to the Philippine uh, Revolutionary Movement. But uh, the Gang of Four were deposed, and from there on, I, I, I don't think there was any more support coming from any other country. Well, while that's going on, in the rural areas, what was happening in the urban areas? Well, we built the mass movement in the urban areas. So the first activity that happened was were workers' strikes in 1975. Then it was followed by the organization of the urban poor communities uh, because there were a lot of demolition, community demolition uh, going on at the time. And so there were also big rallies uh, among them. Then later on, there was a revival of the student movement in the 1980s. So it was part of the uh, organizing that uh, was done by the underground movement. Well, moving forward to 1986, you said there were two groups of people who brought on the uprising. There was the, the people, mass 
activists in the people themselves and then there were sections of the military. Who were those sections of the military and why were they unhappy? Actually, at first they formed themselves into, uh, they call it RAM, Reformed Armed Forces Movement. Uh, and it was uh, among the junior officers. And they were quite unhappy with the way they were treated and the way they were being used to to support to support the interest of the Marcoses. They said they were professional soldiers and, and they didn't want that. So they formed themselves into a group. When the snap election happened, I think they also knew that uh, Marcos cheated and so they could not t- tolerate uh, it anymore and they planned a coup d'etat which didn't work. So those who planned the coup d'etat were arrested and tortured and then later on Marcos went against the generals and the head of the and the, the defense minister and really who decided to stay at the took at the camp the uh, camp Aguinaldo or camp Crami at the time and Marcos surrounded or tried to surround the place for them to arrest them that was when the people uh, came in there was a call from Cardinal Sin, the head of the Catholic Church at the time, and they called on the people to come to support and defend the military rebels. The underground forces and the uh, mass movement that uh, we have at the time also joined in. Was there any reticence for the people to move in with the military because they've been their enemies all along? And because they were against Marcos and the people had already... And they could trust yeah, them. Yeah, so, so they, they, they see that they can trust them and they really, people want an end to the Marcos rule. So they went there and they, so it was like a unity of, of uh, all the, the, the forces in the Philippines, from the rich to the poor, from the police to the military. Everyone was really against the rule of the Marcoses and uh, it was called at the time, even by the you know, ordinary people. There was a conjugal dictatorship. It was Ferdinand Marcos and Imelda who were ruling the country, and the people wanted to change that, especially after the assassination of Benigno Aquino and after the cheating of uh, the election where Cory Aquino ran. Talk a bit more about the Catholic Church and Cardinal Sin. How important was he? Uh, actually, the, the uh, people in the church who really supported the movement uh, were influenced by the liberation theology. It was, I think, in the 60s, 70s that it became quite influential within the uh, Catholic Church. So it was the ordinary priests and nuns uh, who first joined up in the movement against Marcos. And it started with uh, the human rights protests against the human rights violations of the Marcoses. So the first group uh, which re- uh, reacted against it were the nuns and then the priests. And so they held rallies, they uh, visited the detention centers to uh, give support to those uh, arrested and tortured by the dictatorship. Uh, it could not be ignored by the main leaders of the Catholic Church. So uh, Cardinal Singh, uh, who was the leading figure of the Catholic Church, also in, in a way critiqued uh, the Mar- Marcoses on that ground, in a way allowed uh, his priests and nuns to continue with their work among the, the people and those who were abused by the military and the government. Did the Vatican try and stop him? I'm not so sure about the internal workings of the Catholic Church, but uh, I think at the later period, when it was clear that there was a force that can really be put up uh, against Marcos, not coming from the left, 
but also from the elite, Cory Aquino, and the anti-Marcos uh, elite opposition, that's when Cardinal Sin uh, started to voice, more prominently voice out his opposition against the Marcoses. Before that, there was no, not even a whimper from the Cardinal and the uh, actions, uh, activities, pro-people activities uh, in support of the people's struggles uh, were coming from the nuns and priests. Similar to Latin America. Yes, and uh, actually some priests joined the armed struggle and became leaders of the NPA. Take us back to the 25th of February, 1986. Where were you? Uh, well, I was actually, when that happened, I was actually in Germany because uh, I, I was in the uh, labor movement uh, doing the international networking of the KMU, the Kilusang Mayu, Mayu Uno, the Radical Trade Union Federation that we formed, established at the time. And so when it happened, I was not around, but we were actually uh, discussing that and even debating about that because uh, some in my groups did not want Cory Aquino. I was <laughs> saying that we had no choice, we should support her uh, because this is a fight against Marcos. And some didn't believe that uh, Marcos would leave, that uh, uh, it's uh, basically we had just to continue the armed struggle in order to depose Marcos. So events turned out the other way. And uh, so when I came back, Marcos was already out. And there was jubilation in the air. So I remember coming from Germany to Holland and where, where I took the plane going to Manila. The Philippine Airlines, I think it was the Philippine Airlines, the plane was playing Bayanko music <laughs> in, you know, in, uh, also to show that something has happened in the Philippines and there's now a new administration. And that's veteran activist from the Philippines, Sonny Malienko, and next week we'll be playing the the second part of that interview with Sonny. Dilma Rousseff, Brazil's first female president, has been suspended from that office following the vote of the Federal Senate on the 12th of May to proceed with the impeachment process a move that many see as an attempt by the right-wing opposition to carry out a quote-unquote constitutional coup. On the line is Fred Fuentes, an author and journalist specialising in Latin America. Fred, the term being used to oust Rousseff is constitutional coup. Can you explain? Essentially, uh, Dilma Rousseff won the the last election. She ran out, uh, went into the second round in a runoff election in which she won 51, 52% of the vote. So won, won by 2, 3% over her, her main rival in those elections. Now those elections were in uh, 2014 and essentially represented the fourth time that the Workers' Party had won presidential elections. Prior to her, Lula da Silva had won two elections uh, and this was Dilma's re-election. So this was now her time to serve her second term in government. The right wing who have always opposed the Workers' Party ever since it was formed as a party that emerged out of the trade union and student protests against the dictatorship, the military dictatorship in the, in the 70s and early 80s, that same right wing very much feared that, you know, already now fourth term of a Workers' Party government and with the possibility of Lula being able to, who has a very high popularity, being able to stand once again have been trying to figure out of a way, essentially, to get rid of Dilma 
and the Workers' Party from power prior to allowing Lula to run in a, in a future election. And what they've utilised is two things. Firstly, there's no doubt that the Workers' Party has been losing support over the last few years, and in large part this has been driven by some of the economic policies that the Dilma Rousseff government has brought in. Uh, these are very much policies that went against what she had campaigned around. Her campaign had been, we need an opposition to the neoliberal right-wing parties that are standing, we need to be public investment into infrastructure, into public transport. These kind of issues were what she had campaigned on. But under the pressure of business elites and the world economic crisis, uh, essentially began to implement a lot of the same economic policies and agenda that the right wing had been proposing. This uh, had a big impact in undermining her support. So the right wing opposition, feeling that the government was weak, went on the offensive and used a broad corruption scandal that has engulfed not just the Workers' Party but a whole range of parties and, and parliamentarians to really go for, for the PT and in the midst of that uh, have used a charge against Dilma, which it should be clarified, she's not in any way being charged with corruption. What she's been accused of is basically uh, what, uh, a, a, a mechanism that is used to basically utilise loans from banks to cover budget deficits, a tactic that you know, one can debate how good or bad it is, but it's been used by every government you know, essentially since the 1980s to cover budget deficits, uh, and in fact was used by Temer, who is now the the interim president, uh, who at that point was vice president to Dilma Wall. He was governor and, and vice president. So it's a tactic that's been used by many politicians, but the right wing have used that to essentially um, move to impeach her. That's really the background to it. The background to it is the Workers' Party government, having been in power now for a fourth term, looking towards a fifth term, and a right wing opposition using the fact that the PT had undermined its own support through bad policy, economic policy decisions to uh, use a, a false charge of corruption or a false charge of misappropriation of funds to impeach Dilma and then basically step into the breach as the new interim government in Brazil. Does this impeachment process mean the end for her? In theory, after six months, it's meant to go back to the Congress and there there will be a, a final decision made in regards to whether she's you know, removed from her post completely and you know, put on trial for this you know, question that I mentioned about the using the bank loans for, for budget deficits. Now, all, all things being equal, I think there's no doubt that the Congress will continue to move in the same direction, that is pushing Dilma uh, out of power. But, of course, there are big protests that have begun in Brazil, and these could have an influence, you know, could pressure certain parliamentarians, certain parties, to change their position when it returns back to the Congress uh, in six months' time. So it's not a fait complete. it's not a definite that Dilma will be pushed out of power and that... Essentially, Temer, uh, the current interim president, will remain in that position. And it should be, I, I would add, that um, no one from the right-wing opposition is calling for new elections. Uh, they're quite happy to have the vice president, who is from a, a party that is you know, not, not from the Workers' Party, who was initially in an alliance with Dilma and the Workers' Party, had broke with them and has been leading the charge to remove Dilma. They're quite happy to have him serve out the rest of the term, uh, which would give them an, a number of years before they have to actually face the ballot box face the people at, at the ballot box. So it looks like Dilma will be gone, but as I said, a lot of it will depend on the protests that are emerging at the moment in Brazil and what pressure they can exert on the Congress in regards to the, the decision that will be made in you know, five, six months' time. And where does this leave Lula? There's two, two things to this. Of course, no, no decision as yet has been made as to who would be a potential Workers' Party candidate in a future elections, uh, whether they are 
early elections or whether they are the next scheduled elections, even though many suspect that Lula might run, he still remains a highly popular figure. But in some ways, being clear on this, the right wing have already begun to prepare for that and have also begun you know, criminal proceedings for supposed corruption against Lula. So I think certainly the right wing are frightened of, of a possible Lula candidacy and, and their inability to defeat Lula and the Workers' Party at the ballot box. Uh, and so I'm looking to also be able to block him from being able to run. But that is, they're a long way from having been able to achieve that. But they've certainly used the whole corruption scandal, which, as, as I've said, uh, certainly has not, excluded, has not uh, avoided the PT. There's no doubt that you know, members of the PT have been involved in corruption, although I'd, again, stress that Dilma herself is, is not at all being implicated in corruption, nor is she being charged with any corruption. But, uh, you know, the, the PT is far from being the only party. And, in fact, it's very clear that as the, as the investigations that have been going on uh, continue to in, in involve more and more people, including, for instance, the head, like the head of one of the houses of the parliament who's been spearheading the charge to get rid of Dilma, he himself is being facing corruption charges. And they are hoping that through this process, a lot of these corruption charges will basically be swept under the rug by this new interim government who will basically halt the proceedings of the, of the investigations that are, that are currently underway. Can you talk about what's at stake, what Lula and Rousseff have managed to bring in for the, the working people of Brazil? There's no doubt that you know, since Lula uh, Workers' Party uh, was first elected, you know, first obtained presidency in 2002, a number of very important social policies have been implemented that have had a big impact in improving the lives of you know, the, the poorest in Brazil. A lot of it has been to do with, say, but essentially, you know, introducing social welfare, social security payments to the poorest sectors, uh, being able to provide them with enough money to be able to consume, you know, basic goods that are needed for a, you know, a dignified life. Uh, and that, in turn, has had a broader impact because that increase in, in general consumption has also been a, a big motivating force for a lot of the economic growth that occurred under Lula and, and the first Dilma term you know, in, in Brazil. As I said, though, however, particularly on the economic side of things, not so much the social policies, but some of the economic policies as Dilma began to implement in her second term sort of ran a bit contrary to what had been occurring. But even that, even the fact that, you know, the Dilma government was sort of bending to the pressure of big business uh, to change some of its economic policy was not enough for big business. And we're already seeing what the new interim government is planning to do, whether it be starting with the, the slashing of a number of ministries dedicated to things like human rights, culture, although the culture one they were forced to back down on because of the mass protests by artists and performers who occupied ministry buildings, already started to cut back on, you know, the sacking of, you know, just generalised staff across ministries. And so we've seen all of these kind of policies that are trying to turn back what the Workers' Party have built up over 12, 13, 14 years. And I think that is a big part of why they don't want to go to any kind of early elections. They would be quite happy for a, you know, supposed interim government to carry out all of the most drastic measures so that by the time it gets around to the new elections, they don't have to actually go to the polls putting forward the kind of policies that they really want to implement. And we'll hope, you know, from, from their viewpoint, we'll have already enacted them and we'll be able to run as people who are not responsible for the, the sort of savage cuts and austerity measures that are you know, already, as I said, being implemented within the space of a, a week or two of the interim government uh, being in power. Is there any evidence of the role of the US in destabilising Brazil? 
For a long time, ever since even before the Workers' Party going to power, the US have, have never looked fondly uh, on either Lula or, or the Workers' Party. Uh, so there's been a whole history of, you know, sort of, you know, U- US uh, dislike towards what the Workers' Party represented. As I said, uh, a party that, that emerged out of trade union, student, sort of liberation theology, sort of struggles uh, against the dictatorship and then also the, the landless rural workers movement as well, the, the, the MST, you know, a big part of helping to form the, the Workers' Party, which was, you know, in some ways a, a vision of hope for the left throughout much of the 80s and 90s where a lot of the sort of neoliberalism was reigning in the world and, and the, Soviet, the old Soviet Union was, was collapsing. That opposition to Brazil has maintained, sorry, to the Workers' Party has continued, of course. For instance, the Brazil played a big role in the defeat of one of the big projects that the US, administ- you know, the Bush administration had for the region, which was the free trade of the Americas Agreement. Brazil played a central role in, in essentially blocking that free trade of agreement going. So there's no doubt that they have a, a real interest, that they've been working with opposition parties, you know, helping them in trying to undermine the Workers' Party. And, of course, we're one of the first few governments to come out and, and recognise uh, what is clearly an unconstitutional act that is going on. It is clearly a, a, a coup uh, against the Constitution because, as I said, even if Dilma was to be found guilty of what she's accused of, uh, this, this question of using bank loans to essentially cover up budget deficits, Nowhere in the Constitution does it allow for that kind of crime to be used as a basis for an impeachment process. Uh, so the whole, whole impeachment process itself is, is, is fraudulent from the start, uh, is unconstitutional from the start, and yet the US government has had no qualms in explicitly coming out and saying that they accept what is occurring in Brazil today as a legitimate constitutional process that's going on. There have been demonstrations from both the right and the left. Is the danger of more violence? I think it's, it's very hard to tell what's going to happen in the next period. And you've, you've got to remember that Brazil is such a huge country. Yes, no, no, that's right. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a massive country. We were talking about a country of something like 180 million people. Of course, its significance for what happens in the, in the rest of the region is of, of great importance as well. It's not very clear exactly what will happen next. I mean, there's all, always the question... Of what will the military do as well in, in this kind of scenario? If, if, if it does reach a, a certain vacuum of power, will the military be willing to step in? And if so, on, on you know which which side will it fall, or will there even be divisions within the within the military itself? But I think for now, there's a very clear intent on the side of those who uh, support the constitution, of those who support democracy, uh, to continue to come out onto the streets and to demand that the Dilma government uh, be, be reinstalled, that that is the, the constitutional way out of this crisis. There are many that are also raising the question of early elections, you know, accepting the fact that it may be true that today the PT and Dilma don't have that majority support that they, they had when, when they won the elections, uh, uh, the last elections, but that the way to resolve this, this impasse say, has to be by returning to the people and letting them have the say, not by letting a bunch of corrupt politicians who are currently themselves facing charges of corruption in, in the courts, essentially, you know, deny the votes of, you know, as, as they pointed out, 54 million people voted for Dilma in the last elections to elect her president. Uh, so how can a handful of, of men in suits in Parliament uh, overturn that decision? That'll be very much the focus over, over the next few months or, you know, weeks, uh, you know, of trying to overturn that decision and, and restoring the democratic order, really, uh, the constitutional order in, in Brazil. In one sense, can the Olympic Games be making 
an impact because they have to make sure that they have stability by the time that goes on? Yeah, look, and I'm sure that activists in Brazil are considering, in fact, you know, there's already news about, uh, you know, the questions of the Olympic torch going around the country and that being a kind of a a site of protest uh, as it goes on. As to whether, you know, so close to the games, whether it will be feasible to have some kind of, you know, boycotts or things like that is, you know, obviously is a bit difficult to judge and and it's certainly a question that activists in in Brazil are discussing. But but I think there'll be no doubt that they'll be protesting there to try and use the Olympics when, you know, a lot of the world's attention will be on Brazil to try to raise this issue of the fact that, you know, there's an unconstitutional government basically in, in power in Brazil today. Well, while the focus has been on Brazil, the government in neighbouring Venezuela has been under concerted attack. I'll just read a statement by Maduro in the last week. We are victims of the worst media, political and diplomatic aggression that our country has lived through in the past 10 years. Can you expand on that? should be surprising, but not. The fact that uh, whilst we have essentially a coup occurring in in the biggest country in, in South America, there's been quite a lot of corporate media focus on events in, in Venezuela, of essentially a, a campaign uh, to try to demonise Venezuela and in particular its government, of saying that the country is on the brink of collapse. Now, this is not the first time the media have, have done this sort of campaign of, of essentially saying the country is running out of electricity, of food, of you know, any, basically of, of anything, and that people are, are starving and you know dying on the streets or being you know repressed on the streets. This has sort of occurred, you know probably once every six months, once every year in regards to Venezuela. What is really going on in Venezuela? There's no doubt there is a serious situation in in Venezuela, a situation that's brought about by the fact that, just like in Brazil, where the right wing are unable to obtain governmental power by going to elections, they are trying unconstitutional, undemocratic means in order to overthrow the the Maduro government. This has involved a long-term campaign of undermining and sabotaging the economy, of political violence on the streets, essentially a campaign to destabilise the Maduro government and make it uh, make the, the country ungovernable, essentially create create constant political instability where these issues are unable to, to be resolved. Uh, and these are, of course, amplified by the media, both locally and internationally, to create, as I said, this scenario of, of utter chaos. But it is completely, as I said, without denying the very serious problems that Venezuela is facing, and the government is one of the first to accept this, completely blown out of proportion uh, and distorting the reality. So you have, you have for instance, the, the, the bizarre situation where so much of the media focuses on the question of food and or lack of food uh, in Venezuela, the, that difficult nature of being able to get food. Yet you have continued studies by the Food Agricultural Organization of the UN, the, the FAO, showing that, you know, uh, actual food consumption in Venezuela is above the recommended average in terms of how much, you know, calories people should be, be eating per, per day. Yet at the same time in Colombia, in some of the rural areas, you, you're having a re-emergence of extreme infantile malnutrition and children literally starving to death because of problems that are occurring there. And this is not discussed at all in, in the media because it doesn't serve their interests. Their real interest is really is to present Venezuela as some kind of failed state, uh, ultimately with two objectives. Firstly, is to prepare the groundwork for an undemocratic removal of power of the Maduro government so that it can be justified on this was the only way to save Venezuela. And secondly, to try and discredit the idea that, uh, basically say that if you try to implement progressive revolutionary measures like the Maduro government did, 
your country will collapse. It's, there is no alternative to basically accepting the status quo. Anyone who tries to do differently, uh, you know, will make their country a basket case. And that's really what's behind this, this real attack on the Venezuelan government at the moment. And the importance of the military? Uh, to date, there's been no indication whatsoever that, uh, that the military are, are willing to break with the constitutional order in, in Venezuela. Military continue to accept the democratic will of the people, which was to elect Maduro at the last elections. The opposition, now it should, should be made clear, Venezuelan constitution is one of the most democratic in the world and actually provides the opposition uh, with the opportunity to call a, a recall referendum. Obviously, following certain protocol, you know, collection of signatures and all that. At last year's National Assembly elections, the opposition won. And that was accepted by the government. The opposition today are the majority in the parliament. And they could have used that time since December when it was shown that electorally they could possibly win to have started to begin to collect the signatures. However, rather than do that, the opposition have waited until now to raise the prospect of a petition of a signature campaign to call a recall referendum, knowing that under the guidelines of how the process for a recall referendum works, there is no way this referendum can occur before the end of the year. And the end of the year is a crucial deadline. Because according to the Constitution, if the recall referendum does not occur uh, within a certain period of time, and i.e. there's less than half of the term to go in the government, that if Maduro was to be recalled, it would just be the vice president who would step in, which, of course, the opposition would never accept. The opposition wants to get rid of Maduro and anyone who represents the same project that the United Socialist Party of Venezuela stands for. What they would want to see is new, new elections. Uh, but they've created a scenario now where they are trying to present the government as trying to block the new elections, when they could have very easily have, from January, started to collect these petitions and done it within the timeline and have allowed it all to go ahead. But I think it's because they also realise that, irrespective of the important electoral victory they did receive last December, a victory that was recognised by the government and by all the parties supporting the government, they fear that whether, if they went to a recall referendum and to an actual presidential election, they fear whether they would actually be able to get that majority once again. And so prefer, just as with Brazil, to pursue anti-democratic methods to overturn uh, the popular will that expressed by the people in the ballot box. What is actually open to Maduro to arrest the decline in the economy? Because, as you said, a lot of that economy is controlled by the right and they're not going to let that go. It's a very difficult situation. and I, 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 you know, I don't think there's any easy answers to reverse in the current situation. Uh, there, there's certainly no measures that are going to turn this situation around in, you know, in a week or, or a month or, or two months. But what the, what the government is trying to do is certainly is working on ensuring that production, where there is clear evidence that business owners are sabotaging production, particularly in the food sector, of stepping in to take control there. So, for instance, Maduro has, has made it clear that if companies are found to be sabotaging of not producing when they could be producing. They have no fear of basically expropriating those companies and allowing the workers to continue to work there in order to ensure that production occurs. Uh, there's also been campaigns to mobilise people to have a bigger role in supervising the distribution of, of what food there is. So everything from the distribution in terms of the trucking towards the supermarkets and then in the supermarkets themselves to ensure that you know, the food is you know, sold in an orderly manner, that it's not been, as it is occurring, unfortunately, at the moment, where you know, small groups of people are able to go in by large amounts uh, and essentially then resell them on the black market at you know, super-inflated profits or take them over the border to Colombia where they can be sold at much higher prices. 
So ensuring that you know products are making it to the supermarket shelves, that people have equal access to those products, and that they're being sold at, at a at a regulated price, at a price that is you know fair to the consumers. These are just some of the initial steps, but these are the, I suppose, the most dramatic steps in terms of trying to have an immediate impact on the situation. Then there are bigger issues that the Venezuelan government will have to deal with, and of course, probably the biggest one that is constantly a, a focus of debate is what to do with the question of the currency controls, which were very important uh, in, in the earlier years of the government when there was a big attempt by big business to essentially drain the country of, of dollars, to take all the money out of the country. Uh, in order to, to sabotage the economy in that way. Well, the government stopped that by bringing in currency controls and ensuring that they controlled access to US dollars. But that has, you know, had ongoing longer-term effects that are today having a negative impact on the economy. So everything from having an impact on, you know, uh, production and exports, you know. So the government has to figure out what they're going to do uh, with the currency control situation. And as I said, that's, that's not an easy step, uh, whatever, whatever it is that the government decides to do in that regard. There's now demonstrations in Chile. It seems to me that there's a, a concerted effort to turn the tide of um, the left progressive parties in South America. Oh, I think there's no doubt. I, and I think it's, you know, it's a campaign that's it's not new. You know, it's it sort of people talk about you know, the sort of new period in Latin America, you know, that it's sort of, you know, we're not like back in the 70s and uh, 60s and 70s when we had the military dictatorships. And it's true that there are, uh, today there are no military dictatorships power, but there have been a number of countries that have already undergone either attempted coups or have actually had to face coups, successful coups. Whether we talk about countries like Venezuela and Bolivia, uh, where there were attempted coups, and Venezuela, the most famous case, in the 2002 military coup attempt uh, against then-President Hugo Chavez. Uh, but we've also seen, in more recent years, in 2009, uh, in Honduras, again, literally a, a president who was kidnapped by the military and taped, you know, flown out of the country and an interim government brought in, and who essentially you know, continues to be in power uh, today, or even if they've had... So-called elections, you know, ones that were heavily questioned as to the democratic nature um, of those elections. We had a similar situation in Paraguay, one, one not similar actually to what's occurring in Brazil now, where a president, popularly elected president, was removed by a vote in Congress, an impeachment process in Congress. There's been a, a whole range of activities being carried out by right-wing opposition parties largely through undemocratic means, but not exclusively. We have also examples in Argentina where the right wing uh, were able to win the last presidential elections uh, in, in December last year. So th this combination is having an impact on, certainly at least on the governmental level, of removing left-wing, centre-left-wing progressive party from power. Can we also say it's a legacy of Obama's term in office? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, if there was ever any idea that, you know, somehow Obama represented hope for change, you know, I think one of the first regions that disappeared in was in South America. I mean, in South America, most of the people, you know, generally accept that there was little to no change. Perhaps it was done with more of a smiling face and, you know, nicer words, but really U.S. policy has continued to be the same. And I, and I would add to that that people are also very clear that Hillary Clinton, as, as a key member of the Obama administration as a Secretary of State, yeah, was was heavily involved with what occurred, for instance, in the Honduras coup. People un understand that and, and see her, you know, see that there's far from going to be a, a, a positive step forward 
if Hillary Clinton uh, is elected president, as opposed to the, you know Donald Trump uh, uh, in, uh, in, the, in the form of the Republican candidate. I think that most people would think that there would be very little uh, difference between the two. I don't think yeah, people would see Trump as any, as any more preferable, particularly as we've seen these quite racist remarks uh, in regards to, to Mexicans and you know, the whole concept of wanting to build a wall, uh, essentially to keep out people from, from the south of the US. But, but in terms of whether Clinton would represent a progressive alternative uh, when it comes to US foreign policy in the region, I think people have already seen her in action as to what she represents and have no illusions that she would represent some progressive step forward for US-Latin American relations. Must be causing an awful lot of nervousness in the South. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of uh, serious discussion going on as well about you know what to do in the current situation because it, it also can't be denied. I mean, as much as I don't want to un- underestimate or, you know, sort of, Play down the role that the U.S. and big business has been having in sort of turn, you know, trying to turn this this sort of progressive tide around in, in in Latin America. I think it's also evident that you know some errors have been made on on the left side of politics, and so there's a real need, I think, a real attempt that's going on now to, to sort of think through well, what what is it that we didn't do right, or what could we have done better, or what will we need to do better if we are to ensure that what at the moment is only you know, tempor- you know, hopefully temporary setbacks, it's only sort of uh, blips on a continuing trend forward, ensuring that they don't actually turn those setbacks into concrete defeats. Because, you know, we still have a situation where even if the left may have lost government uh, in some countries, they still remain the biggest or one of the biggest political forces on the political field. And there still continues to be strong opposition amongst the people to a lot of the policies being being put forward by the right wing. So I think more than a more than a, a huge shift to the right in the region, what we're having is you know a population that is sort of a bit concerned with what some of the left were doing in government, and, and sort of in that scenario, the only viable sort of opposition or alternative or way to, I suppose, to punish them at the ballot box was to support right wing candidates. But I, I don't think I, those votes in very represent a strong support for the kind of policies that these right-wing politicians wanting to implement. Hence, again, stressing why I think there is such a, a, a wantingness on the part of the right-wing opposition to go through undemocratic means in Brazil, in Venezuela, to depose governments, you know, introduce the kind of the worst policies, the policies that they just know are you know, no way they could present uh, in election campaigns, carry them out before having to then go to the people and, and get some kind of democratic sort of a cover for, for what they're doing by going to elections. Because they know that they, there's no way they would win elections standing on the kind of uh, policy platform that they actually want to implement. And that's Fred Fuentes. He's an author, he's a journalist, he's an expert on Latin America. And thanks to him for talking about Brazil and Venezuela. That's about it for me today. I think I've had enough... Hopefully I'll be better next week. But um, just a couple of nes- messages, and then we'll have done by law. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. 
Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The 3CR annual radiothon is almost here and we're celebrating 40 years of radical radio. Between June 6th and 19th, we're asking you to help us stay on air for another 40 years. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference. All donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, just call 03 9419 8377 or online at 3cr.org.au. Help keep this mighty station going strong for many more years to come. Just listen. Represent.